Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. Always with me, my co-host, Elizabeth Leiba. How are you, Liz? I'm doing awesome today. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, and now for the second time since I've said it, I forget to say my own name. This is Joe Salustio, just for the record here. And Liz, and you, you keep, you know, I know you say everybody knows who I am, but I, I feel like I have to say my own name, you know, at some no. point. You're well, known. well, I'm really, <laughs> thank you, Liz. I appreciate you're always building my confidence. I, uh, <laughs> I'm really excited today. We have an amazing guest with us. Her name is Dr. Lynn Pascarella. She's the president of the Association of American Colleges and Universities. Lynn, how are you doing today? I'm great. Good. Well, you know, before we get started and and jump in, we want to know how you're doing. How's your family? How are your friends? How's your circle during, you know, these difficult health times that we live in now? We're all doing fine. Um, We have been sheltered in place (laughs) up in northeastern Connecticut uh, since the beginning of March when our offices moved to remote work. How's your membership and how's your confidence about membership? Our membership is quite strong. Our our mission is to advance the vitality and public standing of liberal education by making equity and quality the foundations for excellence in undergraduate education in service to democracy. And this work is seen as particularly relevant as we're facing unscripted global challenges and institutions are taking advantage of our resources around uh, how to respond to a move to remote online learning, um, and and these unprecedented challenges for higher education. So what's your take right now on what's happening? I mean, this open-ended question here, but you're seeing, you know, we've seen in general, we've seen uh, George Washington University came out a couple of days ago and had a 17% decrease in enrollment. You've seen what happened at Notre Dame with uh, students coming on and then going off campus and uh, returns and so on. What's your give us your take on the landscape and what's being said out there? What does decision making look like? How's confidence, uh, or, or is everybody just kind of throwing their hands up in the air, saying we're not sure what to do now? Uh, I, I think all colleges and universities are engaging in both short-term and long-term strategic planning. Uh, the the short-term tactics require college administrators to look at the fact that while colleges and universities demonstrated remarkable resilience in the pivot to online and remote learning. What was unveiled in the process was uh, heightened awareness of the food and shelter insecurities experienced by students at all types of institutions and the expansiveness of the digital divide uh, with students without uh, access to computers or high-speed internet or who struggled with limited data plans lining up for college-supplied electronic devices or filling digital parking lots. 
And so now uh, college presidents, university leaders are looking at the fact that we have a nation in which 51 million people have filed for unemployment since March. And the financial needs of students have changed along with the stresses that they're experiencing. And so how do we navigate this world where we have to meet our financial bottom line, but also take into account the, the needs of uh, changing demographic of students and promote student success during times when um, students might not have access to the tools necessary to keep them in college. Uh, and Liz, I'm an, uh, I know you'll want to jump in here, um, but it is that balance of financial performance and quality service that is certainly in flux. And Liz, I know you have a lot of questions when it comes to equity and, and what uh, Lynn just talked about with uh, access. So I, I think this is a good spot for you to bring the heat. <laughs> I have so many questions and I've been jotting down notes and I guess I'll start with this whole idea of equity and accessibility. We know that there's been a renewed interest in and higher education has had, I'll say somewhat of a reckoning because we've had to understand how we navigate this post-COVID reality of students having to access education using different modalities, whether it's online learning, whether it's a hybrid form of um, modality and then we also have the country looking at accessibility and looking at equity and are we really serving the needs of the most vulnerable and marginalized of students so I, I guess I wanted to kind of get a broad overview of how you feel that your organization is able to position itself to provide the resources that these liberal arts schools need because Joe alluded to it as well in terms of liberal arts education I was a journalism major undergrad I currently teach American literature and English composition. So when we think about this whole idea of liberal arts education, soft skills, students thinking about return on investment, and when we have schools that are particularly dedicated to these um, liberal um, studies, how does your, what, do you, what is your take in terms of what schools need to do to pivot and be successful as far as that focus on that type of education, but also mm -hmm. What is, the, what is the solution for the idea of addressing equity, addressing mm -hmm. um, diversity, and not just for students, but also for faculty and staff? You know, I, I do a lot of posting about social justice on LinkedIn and, and on social media, and one of the things that always concerns me as a veteran of higher education for the past 20 years, faculty for 10, is we talk about diversity, we talk about inclusion, we talk about faculty being representative of students, but we just don't seem to be able to hit the mark. What can we do better? Yeah, um, so a fantastic question. Um, redressing the growing economic and racial segregation in higher education is our most daunting challenge, and it's going to necessitate a collective call to action and a determined effort to rally the academy in responding to this current political and public discourse that tends to isolate and privilege the short-term economic benefit and promote illiberal forms of education, undermining higher education's broader civic, democratic, and cultural aims, and, and reducing sharply the expectations of students and other stakeholders, which threatens to reproduce socioeconomic stratification. So we have been trying to 
create an ascendant narrative that contests accusations of irrelevancy and illegitimacy leveled against higher education in general and liberal education in particular. And this work is is so important given the distrust in higher education right now. There's been a a rapid decline in trust around issues of uh, concern over costs, um, that higher education is too expensive, it's too difficult to access, it doesn't teach people 21st century skills, but also concerns that uh, higher uh, that colleges and universities are bastions of liberal progressivism where faculty are brainwashing the next generation of snowflakes who are going to melt at the slightest abrasion of their sensibilities. And so this is the backdrop with which we need to tackle issues of equity and inclusion and social justice. Um, we know that four out of five students have reported facing significant disruption from both increased financial pressures and the need to balance work and school as a result of COVID-19. said that they were less likely to, or significantly less likely to enroll in colleges with the greatest impact on those attending community colleges, which are serving the most underserved members of of our society. Uh, At the same time, look at 40% of those uh, aspiring first-year students who are not going to attend any four-year college now as a result of COVID-19, 28% of those were minoritized students and 16% were white. Uh, So at AAC&U, we are engaged in a variety of activities and programs from uh, the valid assessment of learning and undergraduate education that moves away from a reliance on standardized tests to uh, truth, racial healing and transformation initiatives that have colleges and universities working with communities to redress uh, inequities and, and to confront this moment of racial reckoning in America, to working with Ibu Patel and the Interfaith Youth Corps and speaking across religious differences. Uh, so we have, a, a, again, a variety of programs and initiatives designed to address this particular moment and to demonstrate that, that a liberal arts and sciences education is evolving. It's not static. Are we ready for that? Are we ready for that true like introspection? I sometimes feel so with higher education, myself and Joe talk about it all the time in terms of online education, but as far as the idea of we don't necessarily, standardized testing doesn't necessarily indicate success in the future or the fact that liberal arts education can be very robust and has a great place and has ROI as opposed to like, you know, sometimes we just look at STEM or some of these other areas that that's, that's a great area that the students can be successful and still have a lot of ROI. Is, is, are we ready as a country and is education ready as a sector to really do that work to, to really kind of overcome that cognitive dissonance, do you think? Is that something that you work through with your members? I think now is the time, if there ever was one, because we're seeing the fallout from the Varsity Blues scandal. We are seeing that uh, institutions from, you know, Harvard and and the UC system uh, to, you know, Brown from the Ivies to uh, state systems are now saying we're going to pause on standardized tests and we're going to look at different ways of assessing contributions, moving away from a deficit perspective um, and looking at an asset-based perspective on what students can bring to colleges and, and universities. I saw that you're getting ready to speak in the, um, the student success forum. So building on what you said about moving away from 
to standardized testing and thinking about what students can bring to the table. Once we actually get them at the table and we have them on campus, can you speak to us a little bit about, you know, that idea of reinventing the university experience and how we as uh, college faculty, as administrators, or as a college community, how do we nurture students once they get here, especially Mark, like you talked about the mm -hmm. minoritized students, the students that are coming from marginalized backgrounds, maybe first generation students. We move away from the idea of just limiting the uh, predictors of success in standardized testing and, and we kind of get away from that mindset. But then once we get them on campus, what do you plan on talking? Can you give us a sneak preview of what you plan on talking about? What, what are some of the things that you believe universities need to do to nurture student success once these students get on campus? Yeah. For the past three decades, higher education has focused on access in terms of getting students through the door without focusing on student success and what it takes to position students for success uh, in work, citizenship, and life. And we need to take into account the ways in which more than ever colleges and universities must be places of welcome and belonging for all students. Looking at the research of Sia Versheldon, uh, who does work on cognitive bandwidth, recognizing the ways in which racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, other forms of, of discrimination can really actually diminish a student's capacity to learn. And so it's understandable if students are experiencing food or shelter insecurity uh, and they're worried about where their next meal is coming from or whether they're going to be beaten to death because they're living in their car, um, that they're not going to be able to focus on their next biology exam. But we have to look at what all students are facing now, given the psychic toll of COVID-19, the, the financial challenges that, that families and individuals are facing, and ensure that we are engaging students in the classroom as whole students, not just as somebody in the class, but looking at the well-being of students. And, and this will take a, a radical reimagining of higher education, but we must do this if we're going to meet the equity imperative that's before us now. I have one last question. I know Joel wants to jump back in here, but I just, when you talk about well-being, I just wanted to get your take on this, and I'm not sure if this is something that falls within your purview as far as things that you've been thinking about or talking about or writing about, but as a medical ethicist, what is your thought about, you know, we, we just talked about trust, and we talked about doing what's right for the student and, and thinking about ways we can nurture and make sure the students are successful. I think we've, we've mentioned this a couple times on the podcast. What is your thought about some in the, in the public and, and in the media criticizing schools for reopening and saying that schools are just kind of looking at a money grab and schools are not being as careful in terms of ensuring students' um, health outcomes in the wake of COVID. Do you, do you fall on either side of that or do you feel like every school is different? Do you have any sense of, of what, is there any overarching philosophy that schools should be following or is it just everyone just kind of needs to just figure it out as they go. What is your thought process as far as that's concerned? Well, when I look at the challenges that college and university leaders are facing with respect to opening up, I, I certainly was concerned in the spring uh, when people were being moved off campuses that we wouldn't be able to curtail the type of behavior that would cause the spread of the virus, um, placing students, faculty, staff, and members of the extramural community at risk. And because COVID-19 has had a disparately negative impact on 
Black, Latinx, Indigenous communities, the decisions need to be made in the broader context of social responsibility related to racial and social justice. So it's not a decision that can be made in isolation, but through the lens of a commitment to serving as an anchor institution where the well-being of the college and university, its success is inextricably linked to the psychological, social, economic um, well-being of those in the communities in which they're located and those they seek to serve. And I don't, I don't diminish the overwhelming pressure that some college and university leaders are facing as a result of, especially in the publics, as a result of being located in states where there is a push to reopen at all costs. Um, but ultimately, it is the responsibility of those leaders to, to make decisions in the best interest of all members of the community. Hey, everyone, this is Joe, just reminding you to check out our website at www.edupexperience.com, where you can find and explore all of the content that we released under the EdUp Experience brand, including multiple podcast series, EdUp Elites, EdUp Embedded, and EdUp Experts. You can also suggest topics or guests for our podcast. Then head over to YouTube, check out our channel, The EdUp Experience, and you're going to find that my amazing co-host, Elizabeth Liba, has started a new web series called EdUp Unplugged, where she talks about racism in America with special guests coming on that web series. We've got a lot going on at the EdUp Experience. Again, check out our website at www.edupexperience.com. Now let's get back to our guest. Okay, Lynn, that's that's such a great take on it. And, um, you know, there's we've had a number of university presidents on this podcast, as you probably know. And, you know, I think the reason why they're such good leaders is because they don't let on that they're under so much pressure, but the pressure is coming from multiple ways, mm-hmm. right? And multiple stakeholders, parents and students and lobbying groups and teachers and, and the faculty and the unions and the Senate and the and um, state and the federal government, it's a really a, a ultimate pressure cooker and, and uh, really interesting times. But I want to stay on, on the path of what you're talking about. You talked a little bit about the mission of, uh, of the organization, but you really have a, what I thought was an innovative name and, and uh, idea for your strategic plan called Aspire. And uh, I, I would hope that, uh, that you could give us just a little bit of insight on how you came up with the Aspire strategic plan, what is the um, a context of that, and, and how do you move it forward? Well, Aspire was developed when I first began my presidency of AACNU, and it was to reinvigorate our mission and to look at the fact that we want all students to be able to have access to an education that allows them to live their best and most authentic selves and to look at the ways in which we could do that. Uh, It has led to uh, a new round of employer surveys where we're looking at CEOs and hiring managers in terms of what they are seeking in college graduates and matching the learning outcomes and assessment mechanisms we have in place to ensure that we are meeting our responsibility to position students for success in work, looking at the citizenship piece and and the kinds of challenges we're facing now where we see 
controversy over when and whether states should open up uh, more quickly or whether they should slow down. And, and we've got people on one side saying you know, coronavirus is a hoax intended to unseat uh, President Trump and others saying that it's urgent that we step back and for the good of the society, um, shut down for a while. And, and so this tension um, in a, the context of what is, has become a post-truth era where it seems that uh, there's a disdain for expertise and uh, intellectualism and a reliance on whoever has the resources to hire uh, marketing firms leads us to in reinvest in liberal education, which is designed to help students discern the truth and to listen critically and to argue. And, and I think most importantly, to engage in moral imagination, imagining what it's like to be in the shoes of another different from oneself um, and, and then to, to act with that kind of sympathetic imagination. Uh, so at this time when we're recognizing the importance of a liberal education, not only for work preparation, um, where a rapidly changing world where rapidly changing technology means rapid obsolescence requires that students be adaptable and flexible in the face of rapid change. It's also combined with the needs of a society um, and we need to preserve our democracy for the future. And we think that the best way to do that is through access to liberal education. So what do you say to, what's your take on the public trust of education, higher education. Of you know, there's some dissenters out there, and and uh, we've we've had some folks on our podcast that have led to question the value of higher education of a formal degree. That it's not as valuable as it used to be. That traditional higher education monopolizes the idea that you need to get a degree in order to be successful in life. And that's just not the way it is. And then you have Google come out now with alternative mm -hmm. pathways, some non-credit degree, uh, non-credit uh, programming. Um, so there's a, 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 there's a lot of uh, variability out there in terms of how people are mm -hmm. within higher education, look at the value of degree and certainly questions on the public trust side. What's your take on, on the value of a college degree uh, now in our society? Yeah, I mean, there were a flurry of activities, uh, surveys that, that showed the diminishing trust in higher education. And now there's partisan agreement that not only is um, higher education not benefiting society, it's actually heading in the wrong direction. Uh, the most jarring result in a series of studies was from a Gallup poll released in December of 2019 that showed that only 51% of U.S. adults now consider a college education to be very important, down from 70% in 2013, but that younger adults between the ages of 18 and 29 were more likely than those from other age groups to question the value of a college degree. And while the, the college wage premium has flattened recently, college graduates can still expect to earn over 80% more than those with only high school diplomas. And a college degree contributes to improved health outcomes, personal well-being, greater job security and satisfaction, increased career and networking opportunities, uh, a whole range of, of societal benefits. 
and yet there's been this decoupling of higher education from the American dream. And you know, part of it is, I, Michael Sandel has this new book out this week um, on meritocracy, and we need to pay attention to what he's saying in that uh, disdain for the poorly educated is the last acceptable prejudice in our society. We need to look at the ways that we talk about higher education and uh, thriving, flourishing as individuals and members of a community through education and ensure that that doesn't mean that we're stigmatizing those who have been denied access to higher education or who choose a different path. So for us, it's pushing back against this false dichotomy between technical or pre-professional education and liberal education. We see a synergy between the two. Uh, and our goal is to avoid uh, what Thomas Jefferson referred to as an unnatural aristocracy, where only those who are most privileged have access to the liberal arts and sciences traditions. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you think, though, that higher education has done itself in in terms of a reputation at times, though, because of its inability, and I'm talking about the industry as a whole, built upon some hundreds of years of, of traditionalism, um, the perception that higher ed moves slowly um, is it, it does not accept change well. I think that's some of that's been proven uh, to be false through the forced change, if you will, through coronavirus. But do you think that higher education gives off the air that it's an industry that's malleable to the current state, the society current state, economic current state? Or do you think that we need to do better as an industry, as a, as a, as a movement, to meet the needs of, of really changing needs of, of students as they come into college age? I think there's no doubt that we've been complicit in what many consider to be our own demise. Uh, we need to, to prove false Mark Twain's assertion that all schools, all colleges have two great functions to confer and to conceal valuable knowledge. I think if, if academics rely exclusively on the mechanics of arcane study to get out our message and fail to use the most vibrant vectors for helping citizens cope with the kinds of humanistic questions uh, and endeavors that that the academy is anything more than an ossified depository of ancient curiosity will die. So we we must uh, serve as public intellectuals. We need to weigh in on matters that appeal to those outside of the gates of the academy. And uh, no, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't engage in specialized research. So I'm not recommending abandoning technical and intricate research, but we need to uh, balance these activities with um, outreach to those in communities who are engaging in actual questions. Um, otherwise, we will continue to lose when it comes to a basic justification for what we do. And defending universities as forces for the public good. Well said. Well, let's look a little bit and talk about something that I was reading on some of your press release uh, information that you have, and you have the LEAP States Initiative. Talk to us about yes. what that is and its importance to uh, your membership. Uh, LEAP is the Liberal Education in America's Promise Initiative. Uh, grounded in, in what I've been talking about, and that is that we believe that liberal education is the best preparation for students um, and 
so we have a number of states who have signed on to look at the core competencies that are, are essential learning outcomes for liberal education and to deliver those in, in general education and majors throughout the curriculum and to engage in high impact practices, those practices we know will help students succeed and, and thrive not only in college, but after they graduate um, undergraduate research, study abroad, community-based learning, the opportunity to uh, engage in first-year seminars, internships, and uh, apprenticeships, uh, th those types of activities. And so it's states making a commitment to provide access to not only for some students, but for all students to these high-impact practices. Well, and I think that, and, and I'm going to pass back to Liz because she's, I know she's chomping at the bit over there to get back mm -hmm. in. But, uh, but I'll, I'll say that, you know, I think there's, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong here, but I think there's a general, and we, we see from the presidents that we talked to, a, a real recognition of the responsibility that we have as an industry and as individual universities to help people get back to work in this economy. And that, you know, a well-rounded education prepares people for the future. You know, skills-based training is helpful uh, to, to get them jobs. And then, uh, you know, attaining higher education helps them round off, a, all, you know, already valuable education. But is that, is this, do you get that sense amongst, amongst the membership that you have a, a said or unsaid commitment to, okay, we need to step it up and help people get the skills they need to get back to work? Oh, yes. I mean, that's always been a part of, of education. The, the skills have changed. The challenge for today is that the jobs of the future haven't been invented yet. And so we, we are looking at these enduring skills in terms of critical thinking, uh, the application of knowledge and skills to real world problems, the capacity to communicate effectively orally and in, in writing, the ability to work in diverse teams and to, to speak across differences are, are the skills that employers value the most. Uh, but they also, more importantly than the, the major that a student has, is the, the capacity of that student to grapple with problems and challenges in the future. So it's in part a mindset that they're seeking. Well, it's funny you say that, and then Liz, I'll hand it back to you. Uh, my my brother-in-law, I had was talking to him. I don't remember when it was, but... He's got uh, three kids and, you know, they're various ages and one's middle school and then younger. And he says, you know, I don't even ask my kids what they want to be when they grow up because what they're going to actually do when they grow up <laughs> does not exist. That's right. So why would I talk to them about careers that they won't even have a chance to do? Because mm -hmm. when it's going to be technologically based or, you know, it, it, he doesn't even ask because he says it's just not going to be an event. And so that's really uh, refreshing to hear you say that, that there's a forward thinking mentality uh, about that. And I think that's, that's really important. Right. And, and, you know, if nothing else, we've learned from COVID-19 that uh, we need to move away from the type of thinking that sees academic disciplines as separate and disconnected silos of learning and, and start viewing them as varied approaches to the same enlightened end. Because no matter how much medical training our, our physicians and nurses and other healthcare team members had, the kinds of dilemmas they were facing about who gets the last ventilator, whether to hold the hand of a dying patient um, who can't have access to visitors because of COVID-19 imposed restrictions, or to care for those who are likely to survive 
um, or whether to to risk the lives of their family by going into the hospital in the first place uh, are not going to be solved through narrow technical training, but rather the integration of the arts and humanities and social sciences with sciences. Yeah, truly. Uh, I, and I know Liz and I agree on that, Liz. Yeah, and when we think about career tracks and we think about where we're going to be and, and progressing as um, an industry, as a sector, and then also progressing as a country, can you speak to us a little bit um, before you were um, in your current position, you were at um, Mount Holyoke being um, president of the first women's college in the country, that idea of nurturing not only, obviously, you know, as a woman myself, thinking about minoritized and first-generation students as I'm in both of those um, demographics, but also women ed in education, there tends to be a dearth of um, women in leadership positions. What advice would you give women that are looking to move into those leadership roles, and, and what can we do better in education to nurture the, the young women in our classrooms and also as uh, institutions, institution-wide and also industry-wide, how do we open up access so that the women in uh, our leadership positions on our campuses are more representative of the, the, the women, the young women that we mentor and see in our classrooms every day? Mm -hmm. Yeah, another great set of questions. Uh, you know, when I started college, I was a first-generation college student. Neither of my parents had the opportunity to graduate from high school, and I, I managed to escape the factory work I had done alongside my mother the, the previous summer, only because I received funding under the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, CETA funds, at the, um, which at the time were reserved for high school students at risk of permanent unemployment due to extreme economic and social disadvantages. And and that summer, I, I continued working 35 hours a week under a CETA grant and, and had help from Pell Grants and Perkins loans while I attended a, a local community college in order to serve as a caregiver for my mother who had become chronically ill. Um, you know, what I learned uh, from my mother, um, who was a shop steward in, in this light switch factory in which we worked, um, was the, the transformative power of women's leadership. Um, all of the workers were women. The only men were on the loading docks or uh, in the boss's office or in the catering trucks. Um, but, the, but the ways in which one can change a culture through a kind of uh, authentic, collaborative, consensus-building leadership. And I, I brought that experience with me throughout my career. Uh, we certainly need role models uh, in leadership positions, um, but we also need to upend the way that we reward, uh, that not only we reward tenure and promotion, but the way in which we recruit people. Um, and it's not, it shouldn't always be about who's published um, in the most peer-reviewed journal articles um, or gotten the most grants, but, but who's working with students, who's working with community members, working with each other. So the ways in which uh, women and students of color, uh, faculty of color's contributions are consigned to the lower shelves because of the, because of past traditions. Uh, we need to jettison those practices. Uh, and only then will we be able to have more women in leadership roles. 
what's this, um, Lynn, what's this uh, thing that you're going to talk about called the Academic Minute? Why don't you talk to us yeah. about that? Well, the Academic Minute is a, a daily broadcast on, on NPR. It's run out of WAMC in Albany, and it runs twice a day on a couple hundred stations across the country and on Armed Forces Radio around the world. And it is designed to introduce listeners to cutting-edge research scholarship to what's going on in classrooms across the country and around the world as a way of providing a glimpse into what it is that we're doing in, in the academy. And we've talked about a lack of trust in the academy. And to let people know that uh, what we're doing is relevant to their lives. And we are indeed addressing the kinds of questions that matter to them. Uh, it's not for so long the academia has been viewed as taking place within the ivory tower as a willful disconnect from the practical matters of everyday life. And, and so this is just a, a short snippet. It's, um, it's an academic minute, so it's 90 seconds as opposed to 60 seconds. Um, but it uh, really is intended to expose listeners to all that's going on in higher ed. I like that. The academic minute that's 90 seconds. I love it. <laughs> I think that, that that's the best part of what you said there. Yeah. But awesome. truly, you can't get it all in, in in 60 seconds when you're talking about academic all the time. So we've got two final things for you, Lynn. We've got the final question, which I'm sure you're going to be able to answer no problem, which is, what is what does the future of higher education look like? That's the easy one, right? And then <laughs> number two, number two, um, is there anything else that we missed? Anything that you want to say about the Association of American Colleges and Universities? Uh, you know, I think the future of higher education looks much more collaborative than it is now. Uh, institutions have an opportunity to reinvent higher education in a, a way that is relevant for this century and for the future. We have relied uh, over the past 150 years on a model that was intended to train people in a movement from agrarian to industrial society. Now it's time to, to look at a more integrative uh, applied approach to higher education and to look at ways that we can collaborate leveraging technology uh, with not only institutions in our geographic region, but around the world to, to meet the, the needs of students and, and a growing uh, and changing demographic. Uh, and there has to be much closer partnership between K through 12 business industry and higher education in fulfilling those needs. Uh, I think that the thing to know about AAC and U is that uh, liberal education um, and the the need to train students for innovation, democratic participation, opportunities for social mobility in, in a dynamic new world um, is, is really important to our nation's historic mission of educating for democracy. And, and now more than ever, we want to collectively reaffirm the role that a liberal education plays not only in discerning the truth, but the ways in which it serves as a catalyst for interrogating the sources of narrative, including history, evidence, and facts, the ways in which it promotes an understanding that the world is a collection of interdependent yet inequitable systems, the ways in which it expands knowledge of human interactions, privilege, and stratification, 
and the ways in which higher education fosters equity and justice locally and globally. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit edupexperience.com. And if you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen in live and get the scoop before anyone else does. So please, as always, feel free to share this podcast rate, review, and subscribe. We would really, really appreciate that. You've been listening to The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liva, and Elvin Freitas.